Hello, Joel here. I've got a new book out. It's called Be Funny or Die. How comedy works and why it matters. And it's about how comedy works and why it matters. Why human beings tell jokes and then what that tells us about being human beings. So if you're a human being and you enjoy laughing and then want to know what the hell's going on with that, it's probably a pretty good book to read. It's called Be Funny or Die. It's in shops. You can buy it. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. podcast about comedy. I'm Jason Hazley. And I'm Joel Morris. And as usual, we're joined by someone who makes comedy to talk about something funny that they love. By taking it apart, maybe we'll learn something about how comedy works, or we'll just quote bits from it and giggle until we're finished. Both approaches are valid. Our special guest today is the award-winning writer and actor, Barunka O'Shaughnessy. Hello. Hi, Barunka. Hello. How do you do? Does anyone ever shorten your name? Do you ever get called bar or runk rufus or jones like calls me babs rufus does everyone's yeah he does everyone's names, names short, in a special he? way but babs babs was because at some point uh, at university everyone found out my name means tiny barbara little barbara does it yeah yeah <laughs> hold me closer tiny barbara <laughs> yeah. that's me because i'm so tiny tiny and we uh, and you're probably best known for uh, a lot of being tiny people, tiny and we being a tiny barbara lots of your face was in lots of sketch shows and things and behind and then it and fell off them. Post later and then your face fell off my face <laughs> fell off and said i've no had to hide pre- behind the camera <laughs> now since you've been so horribly scarred you've now gone behind the camera and you do a lot of slightly unsung but brilliant work on things like uh julia davis's hunderby and time wasters and up the women with jessica hines and things that's like that right. and that's rather brilliant i think because it know. doesn't happen often enough people go and use their writing skills rather than just going off and pimping their face about it's true i'd, I'd much rather obviously pimp my face because um it's sort of much uh, better rewarded there's more money in faces there's more money in faces but there's no control that's what I like. I you like can't control, control your face. I can't control where I put my face <laughs> and how it comes out on the screen. And that, I don't like that. It's a bit random. I suppose the terrible thing, particularly sorry, as, a, as, as a female performer, is that people are judging your face yes, so much for a role. they're judging. I mean, way more. Yeah, it's more. not enough whether you're, you can't just be funny or not funny. You have to also be on a sort of spectrum of attractiveness. You know, whenever you're and over hideous. here, I am a freak. So, you know. If I were, that'd be great. I, you know, I'd get a lot of work, but I'm some. I think I'm somewhere in the middle. <laughs> no one terrible wants the middle. <laughs> yeah, totally. Well, while we're on, but not middle enough. While we're on comedy and faces, um, in Hunderby, Rufus Jones in the latest series, he tries to blind himself, doesn't he? Doesn't he punch his With own grief. eyes in? Yeah, out of grief, he <laughs> blinds himself because uh, yeah. his eyes cannot bear to see what he sees. Yeah, <laughs> which is his beloved wife being unfaithful. 
he, thinks. he told us about that just shortly after he filmed it and he said it was genuinely traumatic because as they were applying the prosthetics, whoever it was said to him, listen, a little word of advice, people are going to treat you very differently when you've got this on your face because you do look atrocious. And he said it was absolutely true. People were just avoiding looking at him. He said it was such an, a strange transformation. Oh. All these people who were, they're professionals, he's working with them on set, but people just couldn't look at him. Right, because it was too horrific. You think, well, they wow. were quite sort of bloodied and manky. And, and they were. People don't, a lot of people have an aversion to gore, it seems. I don't know I why. What, I, I love I, I it don't myself. Know what, I wasn't involved in Shaun of the Dead, but you sort of want to know what the, the lunch queue was like at Shaun of the Dead. Everyone's got all their faces <laughs> yeah, staved in. they know it's fake. Everyone knows it's fake, but somehow mm. it's Maybe still Maybe it's just, Rufus repulsive. is a very, very beautiful man. And maybe he just wasn't <laughs> used to anyone not looking at him in awe. I think that might be, might be <laughs> the heart of it. Imagine just being ordinary looking. How is this? How can one even exist? <laughs> yeah, no, it's very bizarre. Uh, what have you brought for us? Actually, it is related. Nothing. Slightly to, uh, slightly, what, what we told you I to bring a bottle. To give this is you. a terrible party etiquette. <laughs> um, it's related to Hunderby, I think, quite nicely. You've chosen something which uh, I hadn't seen before. And oh, I'm yeah. really glad I've now seen <gasps> oh, boy. about 40 oh, topics because <laughs> I can't stop watching it's too it now. Good, isn't Tell it? us what you've brought in. I brought um, a sketch of. By, I think it's written by the, the, the ensemble that are involved in the Sean McAuliffe programme. Um, and it's called Spiffington Mance. <laughs> and um, it's, it's just a sort of brilliant uh, clown parody of sort of a parlour scene that you might find in a period drama. And because um, it's done by Australians, because Sean McAuliffe is Australian, they sort of have an extra edge of. Um, a parody to it, I guess. Contempt. Yeah, exactly. Contempt. But um, what's good is we can't play a clip of this. Well, we can play bits of it, but you won't get a single clue as to how this is good because we're now talking no. about a visual sketch. It's a sketch it that's verbally very inventive as well, yeah. but it's mainly what's funny about it is it's visual. Sit yourself down, Flora. There'll be time enough for hand-wringing later. And, and the, the performers are loving it so much that they're also corpsing slightly, which I always love, but it's beautifully choreographed. I mean, it has to be choreographed. Like, when you see it, you go, this is such a tiny space in which utter chaos basically kind of unfolds in a the very... Ce- the central joke is uh, old-fashioned period houses are very cluttered. Very cluttered, full of very sort of delicate uh, china <laughs> clutter. Things, things, things that are easily stands. swept off cyborgs, <laughs> as um, the sketch also insists on calling cyborg. Anyway, it's just, it's too brilliant. Now, now, girl, don't get yourself into a tither. It'll be... You mustn't distress yourself. Or shall I have to call Dr. Witherspoon? Anytime anyone moves, or uh, they've obviously Essentially, done... more and more people enter a very small space that is full of very precious, <laughs> breakable I mean, I think, objects. I think we should. I think we should. I think we should describe this because yes, you can watch it, and of course, it's it's basically a, a, it's the same visual joke again and again, which is things. One idea. There's too much stuff in here. There's too much stuff, and not enough people room. are wearing very large uh, and obstructive clothing. <laughs> they're, they're in crinolines or they have um, swords <laughs> at their sides. So um, someone brings in a impi- giant bunch of flowers, <laughs> and then a everyone hound. enters a, dog, a huge Irish wolf. <laughs> everyone enters with an excessively large prop into a very small space full of. Very fragile objects, and whilst also maintaining a very dignified uh, sort of manner appropriate to the age, which is the McCullough program is live in front of an audience, which gives it a lovely feel. Yeah. If you did this like um, a, a single camera, exactly like a period drama, but this looks more like a sort of nineteen. 19- 80s adaptation of Jane Eyre with Timothy Dalton in it, kind of yeah. BBC I think that might be look. the sort of heart of the parody. I guess that's what they're sort of mainly lampooning. Because it's a set. It's a BBC set with all the stuff from the BBC props yeah. department in yeah. it. And what's great about it is that the cast and the audience hit a rolling hysteria. Because the props become more and more absurd. The props brought in become more and more absurd. You go, please, there cannot be any more humans or props in this room. He'll be arriving from London soon. (laughs) You you can't fit another person onto this pokey. It's a parody of a television centre set. It is. It's it's too good. It did put me in mind of... um, Tom Meaton and James Barkman, who are two people you know. (laughs) um, Intimately. uh, Wrote some sketches for Mitchell and Webb called Martin's Tiny Office. Where (laughs) David Mitchell played a guy whose office was almost probably no bigger than than 
the door opening would have allowed it to be, but the door couldn't open. And it was just a series. It was just a series of sketches in which more and more stuff was crammed in. There's one nice one where there was. I think there's someone has accused someone else of sexual harassment in the workplace. Mm-hmm. So Sarah Hadland is in this office with, uh, but bent over the desk because there's no room for her, with her head on David Mitchell's chest, with Robert Webb basically almost mounting her from behind. And the door, the door to the office opens, and a ladder comes in. There's <laughs> a maintenance guy has arrived. I feel a little bit uncomfortable sometimes with the with the touching. I thought I was just being, you know, friendly. There you go, Mike. She was just being friendly. And I know this seems like a lot of fuss about nothing, but I honestly think if I were a woman. Maintenance. Oh, yep. Come on in. Oh, I'm really not comfortable with. Mike, it's fine. They're just doing something with the wires in the ceiling, and none of them can speak any English anyway. Sorry. <laughs> Once you get what the joke is, and the joke's deployed quite early, you, yeah. go, you get that lovely pause yeah. at the beginning of a parody sketch where you go, what, what's the joke they're going to play? They drop that in and the audience go, I know what's going to happen. And then the delight is not really surprise. It's going, oh, oh you did it, you again. did it. And you another did the one, most again. absurd And in that way, it reminded me beautifully of Mr. Show's The Story of Everest sketch, oh, yeah. which if you haven't seen, no, you should, haven't. we will put links up to these yeah, on the yeah. website. Whatever. But The Story of Everest, which is, the same thing happening again and again, almost like the fade out of Hey Jude. It just keeps going, no, 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 for about 12 minutes. Yeah. And once you've seen it happen once, the only thing you can't predict is not what's going to happen, but when it's going to happen. You have to ride the wave of and you're, insistence. You're, you're pulled in a rhythm. There's a great thing going on with, with Spiffington Mance, as well as the, the dialogue on, on one level, which is very measured and very well delivered mm. and a good Stephen Fry level pastiche of how yeah, Jane also, Austen sounds. Uh, lovely sort of absurdist touches. The um, as I said, the sideboard being referred to as a cyborg <laughs> throughout. <laughs> a cyborg entirely without. No one notices. No but one that, acknowledges that they're referring to the cyborg. <laughs> but it, that trips along on the top, and that's almost like your your yeah. little melody lines running. Yeah. And then underneath it is this sort of jazz riff of foley and things smashing and yeah. crashing, and it gives it a rhythm that's disjointed. You never know when the next bang's going to come. Perhaps you should be lying down. A recuperative brandy will slake her vapors. Fetch it at once, woman. It's on the sideboard. The cyborg? Oh, I'll get myself. <laughs> Come, dear. You should be lying down. Begging your pardon, Mum. Captain Billing Smythe is here to pay a call on Daisy, Mum. Oh, well, then you and Fetch it at once. <laughs> <laughs> And it will come in the middle of someone's very well-balanced, rhythmic, but it's dumpty, that, dumpty, dumpty it's, line. It's our expectation of the kind of um, British etiquette that you never let it slip. There's a brilliant scene in <laughs> Carry On Up the Khyber. I don't know if you remember the dinner party oh, the, scene. The, the when finale. they're being, Yeah. And they're being sort of attacked by um, Afghan rebels. The Kazi of Calabar. Of course, the Kazi. <laughs> How could I forget? That's what they were called. <laughs> And then, and meanwhile, they're just enjoying this very lovely, lovely dinner, <laughs> lovely supper party. Um, Roy Castle's getting bits of ceiling in his suit. They're all getting ceiling, and then Joan <laughs> Sims has a cleavage full of plaster that's fallen <laughs> off the ceiling. <laughs> and they just carry on as if everything went absolutely fine. What's odd when you, I think it's that, I when just, you rewatch uh, Carry On? A lot of it isn't very good. And I always remember that as, as a reminder that within Carry On there are terrific there sketches. Was a sketch, yeah, there the are sketches because really they're sketch writers and sketch performers, it. and yeah. they're just terrific when they when they're allowed to just do a sketch. Mm. It's just wonderful. This is the comedy equivalent of going past the junction you were meant to turn off at on the motorway <laughs> and going. Okay, well, I can't turn around, so I've just got to keep going in this direction. Yeah. Now I've yeah. got to go through with this. So once things start falling over and getting smashed, you go, yeah, well, just, just stick with it. Just, just stick keep with getting it. bigger and crazier. And... More and more things come into the room. Yeah. It's quite clever. I noticed when I was watching it for about the fifteenth time because it is so rewatchable um, that. The first wide shot you get is 35 seconds in. So it's only 35 seconds in when you get the first wide and you go, oh my God, the room's absolutely fucking packed. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. And that's when you get a sense of, okay, ah, I think I, I think see what's going to happen here. Yeah. <laughs> Where all these tiny ornaments are going to get And there's things through. like, when you're, when you're in a tiny space like this, you can bring things in. That's obviously the first gag that they do. More and more people, and then the hound, and you know, and the big bunch of flowers. But then there's things like, then what's her name? Miss? Is it Miss? It's Flora, isn't it? She starts playing the harpsichord, yeah. and two of them, and two of them dance a jig yes, around the room. Join me in this dance. <laughs> <laughs> 
please no. And he has a sword at his side, which yeah. continues to sweep everything. And he puts off. out his hand and he, he picks up. It gets the cake stand caught yeah. on his sleeve, doesn't he? <laughs> But I suppose it's based on a a very, very simple, basic comic premise, which is pure clowning, which is that they are high status people. They're very, very aloof and they're doing a high status program and they're behaving like bad builders. And not not acknowledging it, though. There's it's that brilliant sort of lack of acknowledgement of the chaos around you because they are high status. They're sort of impermeable. There's nothing that would ever, you know, ever sort of ruffle them in any way. It's just for us to enjoy. And there's a lovely thing with this that these people are obviously not only in the Jane austen world, or, or but even if they were the cast of a BBC costume drama, they they've done so many yeah. of these that they've stopped noticing when you knock over the furniture. But also it's the rule of theatre, you know, if you're in a serious play, you just simply can't, you can't stop and, and adjust and go, oh, terribly sorry, I've dropped a prop. You just, you just plough on through, carry it's, on. It's a keep calm and carry it on really sketch. Is, it's, it's, it's probably is a joke on Britain. Britain. Yeah, English specifically, I guess. But being Australian, this I mean, if you've not seen McAuliffe, uh, it's just probably the great lost sketch show that people it's like Mr Show was for a while where people sort of said have you seen Mr Show oh. and it was a sketch show that in Britain not many people had seen I think this was on Paramount or something I saw briefly. it uh, I saw it well actually James Bartman introduced me to it so maybe that's why he was um, writing homages yeah <laughs> but yeah we watched a whole load of them um, in a row and they were just excellent and he he's just like a master clown really and the thing I love about him is that he's in the vein of Sean McIlef. He's in the vein of Partridge and Howard Moon and mm. Rigby. You go, he's an incredibly high status idiot. He's pompous. He, yes, he's so pompous, but he'll never, you can never pop him. <laughs> but he's, he just kind of remains aloof and an absolute idiot. And there's another series of sketches that in the show which, which run and are incredible to watch like visually the tilted room sketches unbelievable Good the wine they were the first thing phenomenal. I was shown by someone yeah the first time you see it you go how oh, the fuck they've the done fuck? this how they done it this is, it. This is actually it's physics. such being a big build isn't and it? you realise they've built oh. the whole set on an angle so that gravity doesn't work and it's just the, the first sketch in the first episode he comes home and his wife says "Have you?" the punchline is have you been have drinking you been drinking but for sort of three minutes before then he's and she's been, lying on the sofa so you, you can't tell just don't know and it takes you a while to work out the fact that the room is at an angle the whole set <laughs> is at an angle it's a rotating and set and the camera is the bolted fir- yes. to the rotate isn't yes. it so, so, that, so that your perspective never changes but the centre of gravity is moving yeah. around the screen and it's it's absolutely mind boggling so when he get, goes to the cellar to get some wine and then suddenly he's basically just if you imagine the whole set is, is, is rotating so he's trying to get a bottle of wine while sort of occasionally hanging from the set and then sort of collapsing onto it as the room shifts It's like a drunk him. version of Gravity, the film. It's, it's just You can't quite tell which way up you are. And it's, there's a ladder, there's a sliding ladder. I mean, it's just, it is phenomenal. You go, he's an acrobat and yeah. a clown. It's, a, it's an on-set <laughs> sketch show. He's presenting it and it's there's an audience and it's all at the level of reality that people come on wearing a hat. Yeah. It's not that full makeup Little Britain no. uh, filmed sketches. These are review sketches done Facets on the set. of Mikhailov. Yeah, and so you're expecting it to be fairly cheap because that's how these things, they look, yeah. they don't look, you're not meant to think any of this is real. Mm. And there's great moments where he just keeps pulling in props and rooms and builds and sets yeah. that are 10 times as ambitious as you're expecting. And that takes you by surprise. And it reminded me right in my heart what's brilliant about sketch compared to any other form of comedy is that when you're playing surprise with it, anything can happen on a sketch show because yeah. you won't break the reality of the world. You don't break the reality of the world by saying cyborg in a Jane Austen sketch. No one goes, oh, I'm out of the sketch now, you've mm. ruined it, which you would do if you were doing Hunderby. It would ruin it. But you you can constantly be popping things and changing people's expectations. Well, that's a call you make, isn't it? You make your yeah. own rules. So you go, for example, Hunderby, you go, we decided early on no anachronisms you go yeah. we're absolutely solidly in this world and we will not break it and we will not refer to the future world because it's fragile you don't want to break yeah. people's appreciation of it and the joy of a sketch show is you can shift gear in something where everyone's expecting it to be just two people sitting at a desk because it's quite a cheap show and yeah. suddenly you go oh the desk's upside down they've built the whole set out things like budgetary decisions set decisions prop decisions can really shock you and surprise you and keep you on your toes and it makes you giggle. You're in a constant state of fizz. The thing I miss about sketch, or that I miss with Mikhailov, is you go the the sort of the character, the 
the engaging with his character or engaging with the characters, you go, unfortunately, you don't have room for that in a sketch. But, but, he, but always he's want a character. To, I want, like his host character, the kind of anchor. You obviously get to love them, but you never know, like you never understand his world, his reality, no. apart from occasionally, you know, he might say, my family were invited tonight and they didn't turn up. But I want more <laughs> of that, you know, in the way that you obviously get with someone like Howard Moon, where you go, he's yeah. in a, a narrative and you you can laugh at him, but you you could sort of love him all the it's more. The sacrifice I, just want, you make. I want to feel more for Mikhailev. I wish that. I could feel more for him, <laughs> but I'm never dead inside. Well, it goes without saying, if only we could. Sadly, convention dictates we must mention it. I don't apologise for that. I'm sorry, but I don't. Now, can I just mention before we go, Irene Chenoweth, who's in our audience tonight. She's 107 years old. Where are you, Irene? 107 years old! Well... Audience is a fickle, Irene, what can I tell you? The character he's chosen, which is, you said Partridge, and I went, it's amazing, I hadn't even noticed how Partridge he was. I it must have been at the same time as Knowing Me, Knowing You, It's 98. But I think that's sort of slightly earlier, earlier, isn't but it? But I think there's, he's obviously informed by a lot of British yeah. comedy, he's a big Python fan, big Goons fan. His character that he's chosen to be, which is very sort of aloof and high status and arrogant. Yeah. You don't notice as a character at first, because sketch shows don't usually have a character anchor. no. And then he starts doing brilliant things, like where he gets a... He doesn't know what to say to a, a blind guy on set. And, it's, and that's just pure Alan Partridge. Yes. There's sketches where he's... The guests on the sofa. He's yeah. allowed to be rude to them. Where he, gets, he gets voted most sexiest man in Australia and is correcting most. the grammar until someone points out his most sexist man <laughs> in Australia. <laughs> he's a pig. But he and would never... He, he, as I say, he's unpopable. You can't... No one ever brings him down. Like, he's just so... He's such an ego, but a brilliant idiot and very suave. He looks quite good as well. That yeah, helps. he does. He's well, a good-looking man. The, the deal I was seeing with him is he was 36 when he did this and he just switched to comedy. He used to be a solicitor. Bob Mortimer. Yeah, he's an insurance ah, solicitor. Hence he those excellent courtroom sketches. Yes. He knows his stuff, but he comes oh. from a, a thing of authority. He's got... He's gone prematurely grey. Yes. And I thought, oh, you're Dermot Morgan and you're Steve Martin. And you're, yes. you can play authority figures because you were one, which is a bit what you get with Stephen Fry, where he's quite young but can play headmasters because mm. he's a bit headmasterly. Mm. And he feels a bit teachery. And then yeah. when he's naughty, because actually he's only in his early 30s when he starts doing comedy, yeah. and he's got the naughtiness of a young person, but he looks like someone's dad or a teacher. And it's so subversive. It's so funny. It never I think that's fails. what I, I love about this, well, his character and, as I say, the Moon and Rigby and, and Partridge, you go, they're, they're male authority figures, um, but they're idiots and they don't know they're idiots. And so we have the tremendous pleasure of seeing what idiots they are. And personally, I, I can't abide male authority figures. So <laughs> for me, it's like a real kind of, this is my favourite type of clown, the high status, pompous twat, basically. Yeah. Being, That's a standard being made a fool. clown in classic It's a very clown, hard clown to do, actually. Not many people can pull off high status because if you think about it, it's like... You know, your automatic clown mode is just to sort of fall over and be a dick and people yeah. laugh at you. But to be able to maintain authority in a scene and still be funny yeah. is, is a rare skill and it's absolutely necessary for all the other idiots around you to be able to play, play off. Ladies and gentlemen of the jewellery, <laughs> I might I remind you that we no longer live in the age of the steam engine and the straw hat and that if it is a crime for my client to kill a man in cold blood then my client is guilty. But if it is not a crime, then he isn't. The end. It's looking good. I sentence you to death. I love the fact that the photo of him on the wall of the set... Oh, with the eyes closed. closed. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there are so many brilliant touches in the set, in the... I sort of I don't really know anything about him, and I, I I sort of have failed to do any research about him. <laughs> well done. I was hoping that you'd probably do that. There's so many sort of theatrical tropes in his show, in the Mikhail F program, like loads of sort of live clowning tropes that I don't know how much he he sort of was it's, involved with it before. He's very but, visual as well, yeah, isn't he? And I was thinking totally. actually, if you the the sketch that you brought in the. Um, Spiffington Mance. Spiffington Mance, thank you. I was going for Puffington for a minute there for some reason. <laughs> Spiffington Mance. On the page, that wouldn't read like much at all, would no, it? No, no, not at all. And in fact, it's, one, and it's a bit like uh, Ditto the Wine Cellar. Yeah. What, what does that look like on the page? Yeah. It's not really, it's not, it's almost unscriptable, isn't it, really? It's just a kind of, look, this is the concept. But that's what I mean about the choreography. You go, you had to work that out, surely. That was, yeah. that was like hours of, of yeah. falling around. And, and there's, another, there's another tilted room sketch he does. He's introducing a, a history programme, <laughs> but with the room at an angle. 
it's essentially upside down, I think, in this one. And he's trying to sort of look dignified and sits on a desk. <laughs> and then eventually ends up sliding off and crashing feet first into a bookcase and stamping on all the books and the ornaments. But what is brilliant about him when you watch that is that he's still clocking the camera because he's still a professional. <laughs> he's still got to do his job. He's got he's the, presenting you... the programme before then jumping out of the door <laughs> and disappearing. Because we, watched, we watched one this morning, which I think, is, I think is the quickest sketch I've ever seen. And it's fucking amazing. He simply walks on uh, and says to camera, now, I don't often do this on the programme, and then he's yanked violently off the set out of a plate glass window yes, it's, it's better than that because he's picking up a guitar as <laughs> oh my god yeah. he's reaching it's for a good. no I don't often do this on the program <laughs> crash he's out of a window it is so excellent there are so many good jokes like that Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Do you write lots of visual stuff? Um, do I write lots of visual stuff? Yes. Because yes. you're a good clown. I mean, the first time I ever saw you was on stage and you oh, were... Oh, yeah, well, that was largely visual. A, yeah, you stood out as an obviously a really good, natural, um, comfortable clown. Yeah, so you were doing idiot a show clown. with James Barkman and Lucy it's Montgomery. Lucy Montgomery. And I was going to say, actually, Lucy Montgomery was one of the rare things, which was a high-status clown. Yes, she mm. So she, she led very well. In the first show we did, Wicker Woman. It wasn't the first show we did, but the first show we talk about. <laughs> first one. <laughs> first one we don't, yeah. we don't, we don't discuss. Uh, no, uh, the Wicker Woman, and she essentially was the sort of the lead and she played one character throughout but again it, she was a high status idiot and but she was in charge she was a policewoman and I think it's really hard to pull off and then she didn't like that so she did more characters in the next show we did because she didn't want to be it's always she wanted to play have more think, fun and you I go but you, you don't know how good you are at this and it's thing, a rare skill and we I, need it we don't write a lot of visual I have to say we're, we're quite wordy um, we did write we did write a really nice visual one once, which is, again, it's in description it doesn't mean much, but you can see this. So picture this. It's a, it's a theme park, sort of Chessington-style theme park, and there's a big plushy mascot waving, and there's like, the sound of children enjoying themselves, and a couple of kids go up and get their photo taken with the mascot, and the mascot standing there waving. And then it cuts to inside the plushy costume <laughs> looking out, and all you can hear is the sound of the person inside the costume <laughs> sobbing Crying. their heart out. <laughs> No one wants to make that one. That's brilliant. What do you mean no one's made it? It's ludicrous, isn't it? Come I can't believe on. there's not a market for that sketch. Why not? We did one which, which about three... Because visual sketches, they're, cause very often they're quickies and they're conceptual. Don't worry, I'll steal your idea and put it, it in a fine. scene. Do it. Put yeah, it some, please. Okay. But we, um, we found that visual sketches, there's a high premium on them because they're very... Uh, they're good for trailers and that people will yes. like them. They, they snap mm. out quickly. They're, Advertising. They're That's where it should the bar, be. Isn't it? But they, they like that. <laughs> so when you write one, we have one which, which went to about three different sketches. 
sketch shows, which is a really simple one, which ended up with Armstrong and Miller, but David and Robert tried to do it. And it was just someone doing a driving test and the, the driving instructor saying, when I smack, smack the dashboard, I want it to break as if a small child has run out in front of the car. And then he does it and someone runs in front of the car and they run the person over and then he hits the dashboard and the guy breaks and he goes, very well done. So basically you had someone yes. bounce off the bonnet and shatter the windscreen. Uh, and that went, that went round about three sketch shows went we want to do this it's a really simple visual joke it'll bang it'll be clippable and it was but they, they found it was just so expensive to the smash a window yeah. of a car I know always visual stuff's expensive very yeah you can't smash all the windows on a train for example or have a you, tall have building you, have you suggested <laughs> that yes have you really of course <laughs> what was that for it was a sketch show called three wheeling which Ooh, I was good Ooh, Ooh, nice. good um, which I was involved with and there was this there was a sketch which john hopkins wrote actually and then we we sort of elaborated and it was uh, about two brummies with very high-pitched voices <laughs> whose voices get higher and higher until all glass smashes around them <laughs> we, were, we too were told that it was too expensive to smash glass they do it in Come on, do it in post <laughs> do it in post <laughs> what's, what's the most Shame. stupid thing you've asked for that someone's given you two ice swans <laughs> two I was so one. annoyed it was it was that conversation you always have with producers going we can't afford anything don't write anything ambitious and then they go we want the scripts to be ambitious and so you go alright well here we go and as a joke I wrote in the script because uh, Daniel Lawrence Taylor and I were laughing about this I went oh I'll put two ice swans in it ha <laughs> ha but apparently they're not that expensive. <laughs> they, oh, really? they made them and wow, had them on wow. set. Because you're always surprised they said at actually, what's expensive. Well, I say what's expensive. Humans. People. Yeah, Humans are expensive. True. true. You know, we once we wrote we wrote some. Humans. We, we wrote someone building a someone made, built a homemade gun out of guttering and something or other, hadn't they? We, yeah, we wrote yeah. this thing in, and we went down to the set, and there was an armourer there who had built this fucking thing, and it fired stuff, you know. Well, we didn't mean an that. actual armourer. We meant a bit of drain pipe with a, a with, a, with, a, gun. with a toy gun on the end of it. Yeah. They do that. that was... Sometimes they get carried away. I think art departments are incredible. I have, I've yet to oh, meet, God. Oh, yet to meet an art department that isn't amazing, and, and their jokes are often brilliant as well. Like the, You'll always get one of them who loves the idea of... of creating visual jokes where there weren't any. Yeah. Well, you're allowed to. And they decorate the set beautifully. Watching and, them be busy. And, and the extra jokes, extra jokes. So you always have to read the signs behind people's always. heads. Yeah. And yeah. you'll always find them. We used to do a, art an department art department jokes. pass on a lot of stuff for Charlie. Just Yeah, yeah the, you'd finish the script and then you'd be on holiday having finished something and they'd say, quick, 400 things that could be on a sign in a bank. And you just, we remember writing lots of them on our phones. You'd yeah, yeah, yeah you just send a list yeah. on an email. Oh, it's such a joy. And then you see it made real. But the, the weird thing that things that are expensive, we were told once on, on something, we wanted to do a heist scene and we wanted someone to pick up a big bag of money, like like you see in gangster movies, a big bag full of notes. And the art department went, it's more expensive to get fake notes than use, than use real ones. I went, that's definitely not true. Otherwise, our currency would be art department notes. But I love that as an excuse for why yeah, we can't yeah, be bothered yeah. to make loads of £10. Pounds. Right. Oh, because you're not allowed to photocopy them, are you? Yeah, I think it was. But they, apparently there was that. a thing like, if it, whenever you ask for something like a rubber snooker ball, yeah. The budget the art department comes to it's a thousand pounds for a fake snooker queue, and you go, really? Yeah. And you miss the days. Someone said this uh, in reply to when we talked about Bottom on on the podcast. They said uh, a lot of the props for that were made by the in-house BBC props department, which must have saved them a fortune. Yeah. Because mm-hmm. getting them from prop houses is so expensive. And you, I was looking at swiping to Mance and thinking what you've got is there yeah. as a parody of a lost way of making television yeah. where there was loads of furniture and a scenery dock downstairs that had been used for Oliver Twist and Bleak House <laughs> and Jane Eyre and if you wanted to fill a small set with every piece of Jacobean yeah. furniture or whatever that you could get it was, it was, they'd just bring it up but it was pre-vintage era yeah. so actually you could find lots of china in a shop because Tom and I tried <laughs> to recreate the atmosphere of um of Spiffington Mance. In your house? In our house, no. We did it on stage, uh, Tom Meaton and I, um, when we used to perform together, um, before we reproduced. At the end of that, <laughs> that you can't, end of that you don't see each other anymore. <laughs> we don't laugh anymore. Um, <laughs> but no, it, we did this sketch where we were an unhappy couple. Basically all our sketches involved unhappy couples trying to uh, get away from each other. And this couple were like uh, porcelain collectors and um, and it was a live sketch. And the idea being that at some point he or I would lose my sh- our shit and smash all the porcelain. And so we went around all the charity shops collecting up as many porcelain figurines as we could. And we tried it out live at the Hen and Chickens. Um, 
Unfortunately, we nearly blinded several people in the front Whoa. row because it turns out if you chuck a, <laughs> if you chuck a porcelain figurine across the stage, it doesn't just smash nicely and satisfyingly like a Greek taverna plate. It just kind of sort of kind of bits just sort of shard off Chip and into people's <laughs> eyes. It's like a grenade. <laughs> So that's why I really appreciate the amount of work that went into Spiffington Mance because you go, it's so beautifully choreographed. No one Nobody lost their sight, <laughs> I don't think. Captain, welcome. Thank you very much, ma'am. This is Pollock. It is an unalloyed delight to meet you as always. Oh, you're quite a surprise. Of course, you know my younger daughter, Flora. Yes, indeed. <laughs> This abject pleasure to meet you. I First try not time. to go on set. Do you? I do you? don't like to see what people have done with, with the lovely words I wrote. Oh, really? It's, got used it's to always it. disappointing, no matter what. You know how you visualise it. In your head, you imagine it in such a certain way. And then yeah. directors come along and performers. Is and it compromise or is it just you, that you want to step in? Because you've done stuff when you started out and you were sort of running your own group, as it were, a performance. Yeah. When you go to Edinburgh shows and things, you'd have control. Oh, yeah, yeah. Take more no, it's all about control, isn't it, really? So do you well, find it me. hard to, to <laughs> sit back? Uh, yeah, yeah. And then I get asked to leave set. I've often been asked to leave. Will you leave? Really? Yeah, yeah, because I'm just a pain in the arse and I get over-involved. Do you or keep I get suggesting changes? I just go, oh, that's not the way I would have done that. Anyway, I've learned now, I think. I am, yeah, totally. It's like, oh, I, would, I wouldn't have done it like that. I think, well, actually, you know, either direct it yourself or, or fuck off, essentially. You know, Let people I think do I should, yeah, I, sh- I, I think it's healthier for me to stay away. That, uh, that's actually quite it's healthier nice for thing. me, it's healthier for them. <laughs> the, the production will Better be finished. Around, no, one everyone. Will get, no one will get China in their eye. No. It's much, much easier. But it's, no it's, one it's will a, fall out. There's a mutual respect thing there, which I think a lot of writers moan about. And you go, I, I think I know to stand well clear once the machinery starts going. But then in return, you go, will you leave my script alone? Then? Yeah. I've done my bit to the best of my ability. And if you do your bit to your best of your ability together, we'll give. Oh, yeah. I mean, each. when you see a performer actually sort of breathe life into something where you go, oh, I didn't even think of that particular nuance, yeah. then that's pretty amazing. When everyone's but, bringing their A game. Yeah, yeah, totally. You want to trust people. It's just when you're on set, it's kind of annoying. I find being on set very irritating anyway, all that hanging around. It's boring, isn't it? It's so boring. It's, it is. It's, it's, being on set is very it's boring. It's like a weird sort of limbo. When did you as first a performer, go on set? You when did I first go on set? I think it might have been a... It was an advert I did with... Collie Coleman, Olivia <laughs> Coleman and I, for the National Lottery, as it was called then. Right. And I was, I was so nervous, I, I could barely speak. And I got that weird sort of brain freeze thing that happens where you have such a panic attack that you can't think of anything. And then I did a, a comedy lab with Gareth Tunney called Tracy and I, written by Seb Barwell. Quite a fun shoot. It was all very low key and low budget. We had an extraordinary director called Tom Collins. Uh, anyway, his direction involved going, ah, ah, you're all right. <laughs> ah, ah, yeah, 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 you're all right. <laughs> so Gareth would go, could I, do you, should I be here? Or what should I do in this scenery? Ah, yeah, yeah, you're all right. <laughs> so I think it's the best kind of directing. Anyway, so that was my first go. But that what was did, fun. And, and was, it, was it a shot? Did you, had you been on set to visit things as a kid or anything? Never, the first time? never. I mean, it was a studio set, so it was quite sort of locked in and hemmed in and not very, not very exciting, very low key. So out in Greenford on the edges of London, um, and we had to get the tube in as well. It wasn't like, uh, <laughs> <laughs> it really was very, very non-glamour. In fact, none of it's glamorous, though, no. ever. You're usually no, just sort no, of sweating and no. moaning. And there's a weird sort of mental limbo you go into where you can't do anything else other than just sit and wait between between scenes. And you're not allowed to go anywhere, so you're always being sort of corralled and harangued by a, an AD to stay put and stay in a caravan or in a <laughs> or in a holding area. You're not allowed any independence. I think that's why I came to hate it. And also the scrutiny is pretty agonising. If you're in a lot of scenes, if you're on set all the time, everyone's looking at you. <laughs> they basically are all looking at you. They're only looking at you through through a lens but through their own eyes everyone's staring at you <laughs> waiting for you to do a thing and suddenly that made me feel a bit sort of unnerved <laughs> I started how feeling that, very odd about how that how is that different than performing in front of an audience because you were very confident live oh yeah that was but that's alright you kind of uh, you react immediately and you know when it's going badly you know when it's going well and it's all entirely 
you're in control again because you're in control of the room and you're in control of the people yeah. in front of you and your own performance and you don't have to do it again until the next night. Do you feel out of control when you're on camera? Yeah, yeah, and scrutinised as well. That's the thing. It's the scrutiny. You go every curious that you've bit got, of you you've got an audience, being, haven't you, when you're yeah. being filmed, and it's not your audience. But it's not your audience. They're bored. And they don't care, and they're there doing a job, and you can see all around you people waiting and waiting to get on with the next bit of their job, and they're not there for you, and they're not there to be entertained. God. And that's really odd. So you go, you're giving a performance that no one wants. It's <laughs> against their will. This, is, this audience hates me. Everyone is obliged is it, to watch. It must be a bit of a struggle then to try to maintain your performance, especially if it's yeah, a comic yeah. performance. You do. Well, that's where you rely on your co-performers, if you're lucky enough to have any around you. Um, and then that's the sort of camaraderie. And if that's gone, if you're not getting on with them, then you're screwed, really. So That's another reason I used to find it traumatic as a writer. You always want to go on set as a writer. I want to be treated as part of this production. When I get to the rap party, I want people to know who I am. And yeah. I'm saying to editors and writers, the people who everyone's introduced to at the rap party, they're like, sorry, who are you? I wrote it. I and created who this. I, I fixed it at the end. <laughs> uh, we both made this work. But you've never met anyone. You want to go on set and you go on set and you realise all you're watching is these things you thought were really funny go down really really badly mm. again and again and again for ages when no one's in the mood for it yeah and it's actually like it's oh god do you want to go and watch your jokes die <laughs> the really... flip side of that is when everyone's finding it hilarious and you're all laughing you're all corpsing and even the cameraman is wobbling with laughter and you go well you know for, for a fact that that will not be funny on screen <laughs> 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 what is funny in the room will never translate to the it's finished a, product it's a hard sadly. decision as well you get back when people do a lot of stuff where, where they, they keep the script loose and do a bit of improvisation and I always think that's mainly to keep the crew interested yeah. so that they're not going through the motions there's a sense of danger and a bit of edge and it feels a bit more live because actually the stuff I remember the first edit we ever got back of a kunk with, with Diane, we'd sent Diane out to be filming a kunk yeah. and she came back and the first edit had all the stuff we'd written in the room that Diane delivered was had been edited down to a small tiny bit of it and all the stuff that she'd done with the academics where it was off yeah. the cuff had been left really long like seven or eight yeah, minutes yeah. long because it feels and I remember just saying, fresh and real saying, that's all new to you but actually, that's nowhere near as good as the stuff that we'd worked out before. You've got to trust that the, the actual jokes yeah. were really funny. And they did a re-edit and they balanced it back up and it was much better. But the original one was, the improv was really long because everyone had hooted at it on set. Right, yeah. And actually, the, some of those jokes were weaker. It's not that crafted. Yeah. yeah. Did you um, did you visit the Hunderby set then? I did, a couple of times, yeah. Was that a happy set? Well, it, as in all comedy that's a bit ambitious in terms of um, production... It was a stressed set because they're always trying to film a thousand scenes in one day and there's always someone who's pressuring someone and it's quite hard to sort of relax and laugh. But I think basically the the chemistry between Julia and Rufus is yeah. such that they, they had a lot of fun. I mean, I always have fun visiting like that because I can just sort of burble on and leave very yeah. quickly. And I just go, hey, everyone, hi, hi, and then go. It's but like turning it's, up for week three of Edinburgh and being annoying. Exactly, yes, yes, exactly that. Um, but yeah, I think it was actually a happy set. Amongst the performers, they were all, they all got on brilliantly. <sighs> ah, Dorothy. Your bubbly milk, sir. Thank you. Dorothy, be sure to instruct Jeff on how to frothy my milk every part for Fiji. I can live without comforts, but <laughs> bubbly milk is not one of them. When you're doing a pastiche like that that is pitch perfect it was all done in natural light wasn't the, the, oh, the yeah, cinematography yeah, extra. is incredible but it will be done for a, a comedy budget as it always yeah. is rather than a drama budget but you're parodying something which has got a budget double what you've got yeah it's ridiculous but it's got to look exactly yeah. the same because otherwise the joke doesn't work well there's certainly the the demand is from from commissioners and executives is that they do require a, a standard of production that is kind of impossible to achieve on the budgets but it's expected now. And I think technically it's easier to do that yeah. now. But it's still, yeah, it's, it's a fraction of drama budgets, which, you know, we makes a, me want to go into drama. Well, we were at a BAFTAs thing a couple of years ago uh, and they were showing that big screen thing that came up and said, this is the best that British television has got to offer. Here's a five-minute yeah. collage with some Coldplay underneath it, whatever it was, a montage <laughs> of bits and bobs. It got to the end of it, I thought there wasn't a single frame of comedy in this. And I thought, no, are you ashamed of what it looks like? Because yeah, it doesn't look as sexy. And I thought, well, they've got detectorists and catastrophe, yeah. and they're beautiful yeah. for the it's money. It's a much maligned genre. I think certain, like certain commissioners, or the higher you go, the the sort of less kind of comedy experience they have, or comedy production experience they have, and they're slightly terrified of of jokes because they don't understand humour. 
<laughs> and they sort of go, oh, I don't have an opinion. I don't know how you judge comedy because it's so subjective. Yeah. It's like judging music. They sort of panic and go, Ugh. No, do I want this? No, yes. They can find reasons, though, can't they? They yeah. can say this. You can get a We've factual got one like reason. This. We've got one of these. This won't appeal to this demographic. Whatever it is, those are all factual things. But yeah. you know, but I didn't find this funny as a matter of opinion, not a matter of fact. Yes. So it's a difficult one to. So get So when through. you have a very humorless head of channel, it's a, it's a tricky. Well, a lot of them obstacle. have come through sort of know, natural history and factual yeah. because there's, cause there's less comedy being made as well. So the people who yeah. rise to the top tend to have been very successful in formatted television and things, and they're brilliant at that but it's a very different kind of brain that takes yeah. a chance on comedy so less and less is getting made I remember one commissioner unnamed who um, didn't know what to say after watching a, a live sketch for a show that was already commissioned on their channel and um, they said oh um, they watched the sketch and they went oh look at that I mean how do they remember all the words <laughs> wow oh, wow uh, they learn the scripts because they're performers. Um, That's a... Yeah, it was pretty damning. They just panicked because they just didn't know what, what to say. They didn't have a comedy opinion. They didn't have, I presume, hard. a sense of humour. Otherwise they would have gone, eh, it's not my kind of thing. I like this and this, but, you know, whatever, well done. But it's a, it's a big... I mean, I'm thinking it's a, it's a ballsy thing to put, your, uh, to put your neck on the line and say, I find this funny, particularly when very much decisions are now made by committee so basically not only have you got to say you like it but 20 other people of different departments have got to say they like yeah. it as well but they won't put their their neck on the line about these things because actually it feels really stupid to say i laughed at that and no one else did and then you realize that everyone you're working with has got a performance or writing background and has been through that fear yeah has stood up on stage yeah. and told a joke that's died and yet the people yeah. you're doing it it's for are much more timid than that and have tended to go, it's about cakes, it looks beautiful, and they've taken a risk with formatting or with casting, yeah. but they've never taken a risk on whether a room full of people are just going to go piss off. Yeah, they panic, don't they? They panic. I only realised recently that a lot of the people I was talking to who were very high up in management and very, very good at making television, as it were, were not the sort of people who made birthday cards for friends. <laughs> They bought a purple Ronnie card. That's an interesting Venn diagram you've and done. I thought, I thought, <laughs> since, since I was a child, I've made birthday cards for friends with stupid jokes on I hope they'd laugh at. Yeah. And sometimes they don't. Right. And I've gone, ah, fine with that. Listen, so. If you're high status, you, you probably haven't made a career out of failing, which I suppose you yeah. do as a comedian. You kind of have avoided at all costs failing. And Failing and doesn't kill you, which no. is the first thing you learn as, a, as a, anyone who writes a joke no one laughs at. If you're a performer, you've done it in front of an audience. And if you're a writer, you've done it in a room full of your peers yeah. who you've pitched a joke in and everyone's gone <coughs> and moved <laughs> on. So you, yeah. and you, you go, oh, I'm still alive. And actually that risk is... Never, I think that's I've, why... I've, um, we've never hit a failure we didn't learn from either, surely. No. You know, you really do learn from failure. It's well, if anything, it just helpful. sort of bruises you until you can't feel the pain anymore. <laughs> like Rufus's <laughs> eyes. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I think that's why, you know, traditionally women have been, have sort of balked at entering a room of male writers mm. is you just go wow there's so much judgment and pain lined up here and as a as a socially programmed creature that wants to please this is like hell you know you're going to yeah. fail and people are not going to laugh at your jokes it's going it to be agony um, were you really terrified by it at first just the world the world of of um seemingly super confident men although i guess i came at it from the cambridge angle which is full of arrogant dicks <laughs> you know they go to private schools where they're taught debating skills like they just from day one they, they are told that they are better <laughs> at everything <laughs> and I think you believe that after a while and I'm sure it's the same with I don't know if, if, if girls are taught that way now in, in private schools but it's a com that confidence to have that confidence from, from day one is Ed, amazing Ed Morris our friend is a BBC producer said uh, it was a lovely observation he said I've only just realised that posh people are confident because they know the other posh people are lying and faking this as well. Yeah, Whereas if you're not club, posh, if you're yeah, not from that yeah. entitled thing, if you've not got that, whatever it is, being male, being educated a certain way, whatever, that whatever gives you that confidence, you think as an outsider, God, they're really confident. Whereas a confident person goes, I'm faking this and I know that my boss and that guy over there and the producer, oh, yeah, they're I'm all faking part of it too. The club. I'm part of the We're fake club. This. I don't know. I think it's an amazing skill. I really hope my daughter grows up with it. I don't know how I'm going to do it, though. <laughs> I don't know how I'm going to instill that in her. You Shout go, at her. Yeah. Oh, okay. Is that what you do? Yeah. Beat her. Yeah. No, but I, do, I sort of admire it because you go, you don't have that unnecessary veneer of fear and self-doubt and you just get on with it. And then, as you say, you can fail away and 
and just sort of shine in your own sort of whatever area, even if it's not universal. You know, I How don't think I'll ever write. It? Was it just failing enough to realise that you were surviving? How did I get over it? I, I went to a therapist and took some antidepressants. <laughs> they should give you those in the writing room, shouldn't they? I think Sorry, would you so. like to come talk to the therapist for a bit? You've been very hand quiet. them out <laughs> at puberty. <laughs> having a look at Sean McAuliffe on uh, YouTube and there was a breakfast show appearance on there that he did where he completely disrupted the interview and put me straight in mind of Kenny Everett or Michael Barrymore who used to do those appear on chat shows and just or Rod Hull you know and then just damage the chat show Australian Freddie Starr well I thought that was interesting because it's clear that he's got he is prepared just to be silly but was the interviewer uncomfortable because that's where I can't bear to watch it like Rod Hull and Emus go, oh, they're just, you're making another human so uncomfortable right now. How can you bear it? And that, that I find quite hard to watch. Was it was it like that or not? It, no, it was. Um, so it was quite light-hearted, you know. Uh, who yeah. was it who suggested that we took the footage of Rod Hull and Emu on Parkinson, put it into an edit suite, and painted out the bird? So that it was just Rod Hull's hand attacking punching. Michael Parkinson. Because <laughs> I said, what, what, such a funny assault. idea. It's what, such a funny idea. What he idea. worked out was he was a jester. I mean, he had jester's hair. He was like a clown, yeah. pure clown. And what he was doing was the thing that a jester was allowed to do, which is go up to the king and hit him with a pig's yeah. bladder on a stick. Yeah. And you look at Rod Hull's career, and what he's doing is he's going on places that are very respectable, like the Royal Variety performance, and he's attacking Princess Margaret or whatever. And we gave him licence, because he had a bird on his hand, to just punch people we thought were a bit up themselves yeah. steal their shoes I think it's it's a national there should be a, a, like a, a emu operator laureate a position constantly to go and punch people <laughs> who've got yeah I, I still want to see like Nick, like Frost Nixon Parkinson emu done as a really serious film with the, with the two of them face to face on the poster oh, please please do it oh that's such a good idea I like it can I play emu <laughs> You're prepared to go back under scrutiny Absolutely. if you're dressed as Emu. if I'm dressed as uh, Emu. What is it? I love uh, pe- people dressed uh, as puppets. Emu. I was watching, someone had, had uploaded an old Mash and Peas sketch with, oh, with yeah. Williams and Lucas yeah. with Paul Putner as Morph. And nothing is funnier than <gasps> oh, Paul Putner yes. dressed as Morph. And he was Curious Orange, wasn't yeah. he, as well? Oh, it's good to see Paul Putner in an outfit. Obviously, the McAuliffe programme has got the Australian Paul Putner in it. There's a yes! guy who looks exactly it's like It's uncanny, isn't it? Which He's makes great, it actually. Even more, it's a lovely supporting cast. They're, they're yes, good at losing they themselves excellent. in parts. Yeah, Ross Hammond's very She's good, isn't making, she? Like, they are just the best. I mean, that's that, what makes it. It's a proper ensemble. That, that, <laughs> sketch, that sketch where McAuliffe is talking to someone called Kobe and pronounces it Cockburn, Cockburn. and then won't stop. Pauline. Sorry, Sean, it's Coburn. What? It's Coburn. Oh, Coburn, sorry. I'm sorry, I've got Cockburn here. (laughs) Yeah, it's uh, it's spelt that way. It's pronounced Coburn. Okay, spelt Cockburn, (laughs) pronounced Coburn. Okay. Yeah. Interesting, interesting. Okay, so, yeah, so the C and the K are on. I haven't heard of that before, but... uh, it's, uh, it's probably just as well, I guess, because uh, it'd be pretty embarrassing, wouldn't it? You know? Hey, does anyone here like Cockburn? Shall I get Cockburn? We're just saying the name Cockburn, I suppose. Cockburn, Cockburn! Cock, Cockburn! Hey, Cockburn! Fuck off! That is, she's brilliant Sorry, at that, isn't she? It. She's great. It was perfect, the pent-up old uh, Salvation Army biddy. Yeah. Being riled and riled. No, I love her. I think she's amazing. My so. other favourite sketches, though, are the the courtroom and the and the doctor <laughs> sort of spoof dramas. Yes. The endless walking around corridors. Basically, there's loads of sort of barristers walking around corridors, <laughs> just talking, just talking, talking. I mean, it was pre West Wing, but it was just it's incredible. Like, it yeah, just it's captures high, high the status, yeah. low status. The mucky. There's a lovely what's the line one of the court sketches. Uh, Constable Evans, if that is your name. <laughs> and he also inexplicably wears lipstick and eyeshadow. <laughs> Mikhailov's character, who's a very serious barrister. <laughs> have, you, have you seen his Life of Johann Sebastian Bach? Have you seen that one? What was Where that he, one? he starts off talking about Bach ostensibly, and then he goes on to talk about how he would have been a, a great deal less successful as a composer if he had been an underwater sea creature. <laughs> 
then, and then how he wouldn't have had such a good career if he'd lived on the moon, especially if he'd spent a long time adapting himself to live on the ocean floor. And he ends it, because obviously he's a man who's a fan of comedy. He ends the whole thing by leaving the set, it's, it's a sort of pompous music documentary, up a staircase and misses the staircase and climbs up the furniture onto the coffee table, onto the wall, Together. which is a, a joke yeah. from W.C. Fields' is The Bank Dick. And he's oh, doing he's jokes so from old I think that's Simon it, and I think the revolving films. set is... I feel like I'd seen it somewhere before. I think or it Fred was Astaire an... or, so, or Gene right. Kelly does a rotating dance... Yes. It's a classic Hollywood. Is, he likes old yeah. films and I think, stuff. I think he's just, yeah, he's got a very sort of academic approach and then he's kind of cherry-picked all the best jokes. I mean, he is... All, a lot of it is so trad and in that kind of traditional absurdist... He changes the title of the programme every series. Oh, right. So the first series is the... Uh, the programme. The programme with, program with, with one M. M. No, just with <laughs> oh, no, one M. One M. The, the Australian spelling. And then, and then he, 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 the beginning of the second series, he, he made loads of jokes about how many complaints they've had about the spelling of it. So it's now spelt the McAuliffe program, P R O G R A M brackets M E close brackets. And then for the third series, he put brackets around the first R in program as well, and started referring to it as the program. <laughs> So he can't even leave the title alone, which is a lovely example of how you, there's no safe uh, yeah, space in this programme. You won't be able to move for jokes. Well, that's it, isn't it? That's kind of like the essence of it. You go, you give him a lot room, you put some objects in it, or props as they're known, and then watch him go and he will use, utilise everything. It's like devising. Like when we used to devise our stage shows and we rehearsed in a in a church in in North London and... We were just sort of, obviously, we'd start with a scene. Like, this is something's happening in a scene. And you are these people in a scene. And inevitably, you reach for a prop. And because we were in a church and there was a Sunday school around in, in one of the rooms where we were rehearsing, we just ended up sort of using whatever was to hand, which were some children's bits and bobs, including a basket, which then became a basket of wind, which then, mm. you know, it's just kind of... It, but he's got that skill. You go, you can't... He can't not find a joke in every single yeah. object around him and and he's got words which are funny and he's got himself so you go actually he is the sort of perfect comedy in one man he's basically he's just rampaging through picking stuff up and doing stupid stuff with everything it. Go, is funny oh but you're kind of this respectable looking headmaster type yeah and you're just throwing you're basically throwing china at the front row yeah. in that, in that yeah, respect actually he he sh- only just occurred to me he shares quite a lot in common with spike milligan not least yeah. his initials. Um, but he's got the thing like the Q, you know, which is a hell of a patchy series. Yeah. It's really patchy. Um, but he has the same sort of attitude to that, which is that this programme is, you know, is I can damage this programme beyond yeah. any... This is a nonsense and you're all idiots for watching yeah. Yeah. is essentially the message. I, it's, it's great because it's, it's, it's a guy, a rep company and a programme that you can subject to any degree of damage, you know, which is great. But simultaneously that makes it the, the, the lowest possible bar, which is that, well, it's a load of old rubbish. Nothing it's a terrible matters. Program. Look at this awful photo of me with my eyes closed behind mm. me and this is a cheap set and the, those wigs aren't very good. And then at the same time, in terms of comedy, it's the highest bar because the only rule for being in this is, is this funny? And I think that's what I miss from really good sketch shows is to watch something where nothing matters apart from the jokes. So therefore, the jokes have to be of an enormously high quality and uh, or, or even just speed or rate or delivered with enormous enthusiasm because you're not leaning back on anything else. Mm. So in a way, you've, you've done, produced the lowest quality programme using, in comedy terms, the highest possible ingredients, which yeah. is effort and energy and ideas and fizz. And- yeah, but I guess going back, yeah, you go, the message is nothing matters, like nothing is important. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Nothing is that important that you would have to dress up for it or... or- put people in prison for it or in any way yeah. get anxious about it what a, what a liberating thing to be doing. isn't that <laughs> yeah. what comedy's for it's the highest god we could do with more of that couldn't we but that's why i say it boils down to what i hate most which is men in authority like authoritative men <laughs> you just go men in authority it's just that they're, they're absurd there you go there's you know they will be crushed by disease and death and the fact that they sort of have such a high opinion of themselves and set themselves so high above all other humans. You know, that's why I love a character like Mikhailov plays, which is he is ultimately pulling the rug under all those types. Mm. So much comedy comes from that. It starts with people at school looking at the teacher and going, oh God, he's got a big nose and he doesn't know what he's doing. And it's the first time that you've gone, oh, the people in charge, they remember the grey hair, 
the insurance yeah. listers yeah. they don't know what they're doing but what you realize is you go okay wow i can wind this person up when you work out that you have something over them <laughs> and you go ah because you are human you are ultimately human and i can i can crush you <laughs> and i can <laughs> humiliate you and that's always my game is if ever i Although there are some alpha men that I simply cannot vanquish. <laughs> That's why I hate them. <laughs> I can't get through. I can't get through. They are impermeable, Teflon-coated horrors. Well, it's like the communist government of, uh, of Czechoslovakia, where I also slightly spent some time in my youth. I mean, that was a whole world built like that of authority and, and danger and risk, if you dared lampoon that authority. And that's why it created some great sort of very humanist... Uh, comedy you were there before the before the wall came down yes i went to school there yeah i used to go and i lived with my grandparents out there as well but there was a lot of um sort of subversive humor that was passed around you know person to person whispered jokes and things like that and it was sort of kept kept people going um but it was about the humanity and that's what Václav havel was always about it's like what is the fundamental humanity and there was a system that kind of refuse to acknowledge any humanity hmm. which i suppose most authoritarian systems have to because otherwise you go well then you are just a bunch of people telling other people what to do yeah. if you don't create that kind of who wall. put you in charge yeah who are you telling me what to do also kind of seeing people kowtow to that as well and how it's just amazing how everyone goes along with it or i guess just for an easy life or something i don't know they're not prepared to undermine or lampoon or laugh at it it, that's that's the key to the idea that there are some things you shouldn't laugh about. And when people talk about that, and they say, there's certain things, whenever you're talking about people at the top and you're punching up, you know, yeah, you can laugh about that. The things you sort of should think carefully about laughing about is punching down to people yeah. who are already suffering enough. Yeah. But genuinely, if you're going to say, you cannot satirise or mock our glorious leaders, you go, no, oh, you're exactly on. who we yeah. mock. You're totally <laughs> a subject. Whether that's a teacher or a parent or, a, or, or the Communist Party, you should yeah. definitely you're exactly people and you should be able to it's the life of Brian thing you should be able to take the mocking because apparently you're so strong and so yes. important and, if and you God put you there then what yeah then obviously oh what I've done there is I've you're revealed ha ha the power ha ha I crushed you and with that expression of Nietzschean will I'd like to say <laughs> thank you the terrifying Brian Crochet <laughs> 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 thank you